Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles and open them together to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, we're studying in a series called The Roman Road, really for two purposes. We're entering to a six-week period of evangelistic training for the entire church leading up to Easter. But I was thinking this week as I was preparing this message, we need to hear the gospel all the time, don't we? Uh, the church needs to be reminded of the gospel. The Apostle Peter said that his job was to remind the people of what they already know. And when I read that years ago as a young pastor, it was such a burden off of me. Because I'm not by nature a very creative person, but God didn't call me to be creative. He called me to be clear. And clarity is much more important than creativity when it comes to sharing the gospel. And so we want every member of First Baptist Church of Keller at the end of this series to be able to clearly articulate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last Sunday morning, our first stop of the Roman road was a difficult one, wasn't it? We stopped in Romans chapter one and there we found that the wrath of God is revealed against all sin. Remember that God's wrath is his fixed disposition and attitude towards our sin. Remember, God is not like us. We are capricious, meaning we change like the wind. One day, something that causes us to be violently angry, the next day may cause us to laugh. God's not like that. He's always angry against sin. God's wrath ultimately will be poured out at the final judgment. And we saw last week that all men are without excuse when they stand before the Lord on that day of judgment because God has revealed himself in several ways. Number one, he has written the law in their hearts, the scripture says, that man is born with the law of God written on his heart. He knows right and wrong. Secondly, through general revelation, that is by nature, what has been made, God shows forth his attributes. You can look at the world and sense that he is creative, he's strong, he's powerful, and he's benevolent. That's called general revelation. Now, how does man respond to God's revelation? Well, generally not very well. In fact, Romans 1 says he responds with pride. Professing himself to be wise, he becomes a fool. He decides he doesn't need the God of the Bible, and so he decides to make himself his own God. Therefore, his foolish heart is darkened. He gropes around in the darkness all the while thinking he's in perfect light. That's why Jesus called the Pharisees blind leaders of the blind. They thought they were showing the way and they were just as blind as everyone else. Which leads to all forms of idolatry, which God hates. Idolatry is not just building idols and sacrificing to them. Idolatry is having a lower view of God than the Bible presents. And the world is full of idolaters. In fact, Man started out worshiping man, and he's been going downhill ever since until the Bible says he now worships creepy, crawly things, and that is literally true. When the Apostle Paul would go on his missions trips, as he did in Acts chapter 17 that I read from a moment ago, he was always struck with the idolatry of man. That was never more true than when he entered the city of Athens, Greece. There was an idol on every corner. 
So much so that he said he found one idol that didn't even have a name. It just had an inscription that said to an unknown God. So presumably they said, let's cover all the bases. Let's name all the gods we know of. And then perhaps we missed one. Let's make a statue to him. And Paul was absolutely heartbroken when he saw all of that. And he began to tell them that God was not some distant deity. He certainly was not made with the hands of men. In fact, he was knowable and wanted to have a relationship with them. And he told them how to do that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then verse 32 says this, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. And others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. I'm, I'm in Acts 17. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined and believed. That really is a microcosm of the reaction that people have to the gospel. A lot of people hear it and they sneer at it and they say, that's silly, that's foolish. Others say, let me think about that. And then there's a third group that hear it and they believe. Does that encourage your heart? We're not naive. No matter how many evangelistic trainings we put on in our church, not everyone is going to believe on Jesus. But here's the glorious truth. Some will. Some will. It's not because of our training. It's because of the power of the gospel. And so when we take that good news message, the Lord calls people by His Spirit unto Himself. Now, we come to our text today. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now for the first three chapters of Romans the apostle Paul hammers the same nail over and over again. And that hammer that he brings is the Word of God, and that nail is the guilt of man. He lays out for three full chapters the case that God brings against all humanity. How man is a God-hater, and how he willfully sins and is spiritually blind and is a proud idolater. To tell you the truth, I really took it easy on us last week, just taking five verses and saying that's the bad news. Those of you who were with us on Wednesday nights a few years ago when we studied verse by verse through Romans know it took us about six months <laughs> to get to the good news. All the way here to chapter 3 before Paul gives any hope. Really the key to understanding the book of Romans and the gospel I believe is in chapter 2. If you'll back up one chapter, verse 11, it says this, There is no partiality with God. He's speaking there of God in His judgment. Because Paul knows he's writing to a group of people, on one hand Jewish people, who thought we don't have anything to worry about when it comes to the judgment because we're God's chosen people. And on the other hand he was writing to Gentiles who had their whole pantheon of gods and they say, well, the God of the Bible is a Jewish God so we don't have to worry anything about with Him. And Paul says, no, you're both wrong. There's no partiality with God. He judges 
all of his creation. God is writing, excuse me, Paul is writing about God's judgment. The standard of judgment that God uses is his own perfect righteousness. So in verse 23 of chapter 3, Paul reminds us one more time what he's already said for three chapters, there's none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our Bible memory verse this week. So since we are all guilty and our only hope of salvation then must come from outside of humanity. You see, if even one of us in the human race were perfect, we wouldn't need Jesus, would we? He could be our Savior. But since all are guilty, all fall short, we needed a Savior from heaven. And that's where Jesus comes in. So then we come to the, the crux, the hinge upon which all New Testament theology turns. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. To say that the doctrine of justification is important to biblical Christianity is similar to saying that water is important to fish. It's the atmosphere in which we live. It's the air in which we believe as the church. It is in short the truth upon which Christianity either stands or falls. It was the material cause, if you remember your history lesson, of the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary, as I've reminded us many times, of Martin Luther's nailing his theses to the church house door in Wittenberg, Germany. Consider the words of Martin Luther on the doctrine of justification. Quote, the article of justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. Without justification, the world is utter death and darkness, end quote. If we didn't have the doctrine of justification by faith, we'd be just like the pagans all over the world. We'd be groping about in the darkness. This morning we're going to look at the doctrine of justification as well as some of its implications. So if you have your outline, the very first point is simply that, justification. The word justification is a forensic term, meaning it comes from the legal system. If you are a lawyer or work in a law office or took a class in law, you, you know that term justification. It simply means made right or declared not guilty. The scriptures reveal God to be our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. We've been studying through our doctrinal statement here recently. And the second article of the Baptist Faith and Message says that very thing about God. He's our creator. Genesis 1 tells us that. He's our redeemer, that is, he's our savior through Jesus Christ. He's our sustainer. By him all things hold together. But he's also revealed to be the righteous judge of the universe, right? There is no higher court to which to appeal than God. His verdicts are altogether right, and they are informed by his omniscience. The fact that he knows everything about us, every thought we've ever thought, every deed we've ever done. If you've ever served in a jury pool, you know how frustrating it can be that we are not omniscient. And so you, you sit in a courtroom case and you hear one very well-dressed lawyer tell you one set of facts, and he sits down and another very well-dressed lawyer tells a totally different set of facts, and you're left to decide who's telling the truth. And you're not omniscient. Well, here's the thing about God. He's a perfect judge because he is omniscient. He knows everything. And that makes him qualified to be the judge of the universe. Now, the problem with that is he knows we're all guilty. 
we all stand before him guilty. And he's already declared he's not going to show partiality. He's not going to say, well, you come from a very good family. I'm going to take it easy on you. And uh, you were born with some hardships, so I'm going to take it easy on you. No, he's impartial. He's just. And this understanding of our own sinfulness and guilt before a righteous God is the foundation upon which all evangelism is built. And that's why I said last Sunday, you have to tell the bad news before the good news makes any sense. You can't begin by telling people that God loves them, has a wonderful plan for their life, if they don't know why they need a Savior. Now, if you tell them that God wants you healthy and wealthy, people are going to flock to hear that. That's not the gospel. The gospel begins with you are hopelessly and helplessly lost, and one day you're going to stand before God and His wrath will be poured out against you unless you call upon the name of Jesus. This understanding of our own sinfulness is fundamental and foundational. We can't smooth over it. We can't skip over it. The good news is that God has made a way for guilty sinners to be justified by faith in what Christ has accomplished as our substitute. That is the wonderful good news of the gospel. And we're going to look at some ramifications and implications of that today. Look at verse 22, for example. It says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe is revealed. What is the righteousness of God? Now, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it talks about righteousness in two categories. The first is what we call practical righteousness. There are some men and women in the Bible that are declared to be righteous. Some of them may surprise you. The book of Hebrews, Lot, the nephew of Abraham is called righteous Lot. And we know some of the unrighteous things he did. But his trajectory in life was towards goodness and holiness. James, in his epistle, says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth what? And he uses the example of Elijah as an example of Elijah, a man who prayed and God heard his prayers. And we know Elijah was far from perfect. So he can't be talking about sinless perfection. That's practical righteousness. The kind of righteousness he's referring to here is the kind of righteousness only God has, his inherent goodness. And we don't have it, but we have to have it if we're to spend eternity with God. Now, the second word you see there is grace. Grace is often described as something good you're given that you have not earned. And that's a working definition of grace, but it really doesn't go far enough. Really what grace is, is something beneficial that you receive in spite of your unworthiness. It's not just that you haven't earned it, it's you're not worthy to receive it. And I'm not worthy, but he gives it. And then faith in Jesus Christ. That word faith is another word that's so misinterpreted and, and misunderstood. A lot of people think faith is just a, a blind belief in the unknown, a, a shot in the dark. And it frustrates me to no end when I see people on television who are interviewed who've come through some disaster, survived a tornado or a shipwreck, and the reporter will say, how did you make it? And they'll say, my faith. No, you weren't saved by your faith, okay? Faith is the conduit or the channel through which God saves. Who saved you? Jesus saved you. But the means through which he saved you, the channel from which his blessings flow, is faith. But faith is more than intellectual assent to facts. 
Not enough to believe that Jesus died and rose again. Satan believes that. So, so what constitutes saving faith? Well, here's how a former generation understood that. This is what John MacArthur says. He says, the reformers spoke of three aspects of faith. Number one, recognition of the true claims of the gospel. Now you have to know the, the historical facts that Jesus left the glories of heaven. He took on human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, literally died on the cross, was buried, on the third day rose again, ascended in heaven, is one day coming for his church. You have to know those things to be saved, but that's not enough to be saved. Secondly, there's acknowledgement of their truthfulness and exact correspondent to man's spiritual need. First of all, you gotta recognize your need. It's not even enough to say the world's a bad place and full of sinners. You have to understand Romans 3.23 applies to you very specifically. You have sinned and are guilty before God. And then thirdly, it requires a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, who by virtue of his death provides the only sufficient sacrifice for one's personal sins. He goes on to say that the absence of any one of these aspects of faith is not enough to save, or the presence of even one of them is not enough to save. You have to have all three. You have to know the truth, you have to acknowledge your sinfulness and guilt, and you have to have a personal commitment to the Lord. That is, to believe on Jesus is not just to believe that He existed, it is to put the full weight of your trust in what He accomplished on your behalf at the cross. And again, faith is not what saves you. Jesus saves you. Faith is but the channel through which you receive His salvation. Now the fourth word here is redemption. Redemption, as you know, is to purchase for the purpose of setting free. And what was the cost of our freedom? Well, it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And what are we set free from? The Bible says from the penalty and the power of sin. The penalty of sin is eternal death. And the power of sin is in the here and now. We no longer have to sin when we are set free by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7. In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, for He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, comma, the forgiveness of sins. And so the Apostle Paul equates redemption with forgiveness. They're just different perspectives to see the same truth about our salvation. Hebrews 9, 12, one more verse. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It speaks there to Jesus as our high priest and our sacrifice. Remember on the old covenant, they had a sacrificial system and the people would bring their animals and the priest would bless them and sacrifice them. They would pour the blood on the altar on the day of atonement. They would place their hands upon the scapegoat and release him into the wilderness. All that was a sign of what they called redemption, payment. But the truth was, none of those sacrifices had any power to forgive anything, did they? They were simply foreshadowing of the one true sacrifice who was to come later. That, of course, the precious Lamb of God, none other than the Lord Jesus. And so the Old Testament saints looked forward at anticipation to the cross event, and now we on this side of the cross look back in thankfulness to the cross event, right? But we're all saved by the same blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So 
there's a couple of theological concepts that arise from this wonderful truth. And, and so let's look at that. Imputation and propitiation. First of all, imputation. Verse 26, look at it. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness, there's, that's the righteousness of God that only he possesses, at the present time, so that he would be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so that elicits a very important doctrinal question. How can God at the same time be just, but also a justifier? I think that, that means this. We've already established that God's the judge of the universe, right? Would you agree? He has the right to do that since he created us. He has the right to judge us and hold us accountable. And we've established he's a good judge because he's omniscient. He knows everything about us. But that's bad news to us because he knows we're sinners and we're all guilty before him. And God punishes all sin. Remember, he's not like us. He's not capricious. He has a fixed disposition to punish all sins. So to continue to be just, he has to punish our sin. Would you agree? But on the other hand, we know some other things about God. He's also merciful, isn't he? He's full of grace. He's slow to anger. So how can God at the same time be keep his justice, but also remain benevolent and merciful? Well, the answer to that question is the cross. The cross is where God's justice and mercy come together without one doing any violence to the other. His attribute of justice requires that he punishes all sin. His attribute of mercy reaches out to humanity with forgiveness to save. The answer is, of course, the cross, specifically the doctrine of imputed righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin. Who's the only person who knew no sin and who has never sinned? Jesus, right? So it's speaking of Jesus. He, God the Father, made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That sentence declares the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Remember we said that justification is a legal word, something a lawyer would use. Imputation is a word that an accountant would use. They're just two perspectives on the same truth. Through faith in Christ, listen to this, through faith in Christ, God the Father counts our sin to Christ's account and counts Christ's righteousness to our account. So on our account, all we had was sin. On Jesus' account, he didn't have any sin, right? He's perfect. On Jesus' account, all he had was righteousness. How much righteousness did we have on our account? None. But we've got to have righteousness to get to heaven. So here's what he did. At the cross, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, he takes his inherent righteousness and he moves it over to our ledger and counts our faith as righteousness. And then he takes our sin and he puts it where? On Christ at the cross. That's called double imputation. Not only does he take our sins, that would only get us to neutral, by the way. He, he takes his righteousness and puts it to our account so God can rightly say to us, forgiven. In fact, he's speaking here of substitutionary atonement. Now, I know we're using a lot of theological words, but theological words are good. They help us to understand what Jesus did for us, right? He's our substitute. A substitute is one who takes the place of another. And where did he take our place? On the cross. 
Because the Bible says the wages of sin is what? It's death. So who deserved the cross? All of us. But John 16, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, which means to die, but instead would have eternal life. Jesus took our place. He took the punishment that we deserved on the cross so that God could declare us clean and yet not lose his justice. See? And that leads us to the third point, and that is propitiation. Now that's a, a scary word. Look at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his own righteousness. Now the word propitiation, simply put, means satisfaction. The Greek word is hilasterion. It's the word they use for the mercy seat in the old covenant. Remember what would happen at the mercy seat is that the blood of the spotless lamb was applied there. And therefore the sins of the people were pushed back another year. The wrath of God was assuaged, in other words. Well, what happened on the cross is that Jesus' sacrifice satisfied the sense of justice that God had, but not just for one calendar year. For how long? Forever. He said it's a once for all sacrifice that is never having to be repeated. So the Day of Atonement was a great day every year in the Hebrew calendar, but they knew what was going to have to happen 365 days from there. They're going to have to do it again. And they had to do it again and again and again. Because remember, the blood of goats, the blood of calves never had any power to save. It was simply looking forward to the one true substitute, the Lord Jesus. So propitiation, in essence, is an act of God. Hear that very clearly. Propitiation is an act of God whereby he satisfies his own sense of justice through the atoning sacrifice of his dear son. Man is altogether incapable of satisfying God's justice this side of hell. Right? Because we're sinners. We, we can't satisfy God's justice. We can't do enough good deeds to make up for our bad deeds. We cannot do enough Hail Marys. We cannot cross ourselves enough. We're not able to give enough money. We can never satisfy the wrath of God against our sin this side of hell. And so we have to have a substitute to do it for us. We become beneficiaries. We become beneficiaries of that perfect once for all sacrifice. How? Through faith. First John 2 and 2 tells us that. First John 4 and 10. I'm getting there. I want to read this to you. First John chapter 4, verse 10. Listen. In this is love. John, the apostle that Jesus loved, wrote this chapter. And he says, here's love. If you want to know what love is, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He says that's the essence of love. Doing something for another person that they have not earned, they do not deserve. In fact, in spite of the fact that they're unworthy, God in his sovereignty determined to save a people unto himself. 
And he did this, by the way, before any of us were ever born. In the secret counsels of the Most High, it was determined that God was going to, he was going to have a people unto himself. And at just the right moment in human history, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, broke into human history, left the glories of heaven, Philippians 2 says, emptied himself, was born to a virgin girl, walked among men, grew up as boys grow up there in Palestine, lived a perfect life, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. Then he began his earthly ministry. For three, three and a half years, he walked this planet, he amazed people with his miracles, his signs, his teaching. But then he completed his task and his mission was to die. He knew it. And he died on the cross just as he predicted he would. And he literally died. He was taken down from the cross and he was put in a borrowed grave. And on the third day he arose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He was born witness to during that 40 days after his resurrection by hundreds of people. He ascended in the sight of many of those witnesses where he is today seated at the right hand of the Father. And he says one day he's coming again. This time he's going to come as the righteous judge. And the basis upon which he's going to judge all flesh is his own perfections. And if you don't have the righteousness of God, which by the way, you don't. You don't. Y'all are nice people. But you don't have the righteousness of Christ. The only way you're going to spend eternity with him is to have that righteousness. You can't earn it. The only way you can receive it is by faith. That great exchange, that double exchange where his righteousness is accounted to your ledger and your sin is accounted to his ledger which makes you right with God. That's the gospel. That's the message we have to tell to this lost and dying world. And so don't you think it's pretty important that you're able to tell it? That you understand it so thoroughly that a moment's notice you could articulate that good to a stranger on the airplane or to your child in your living room or to your boss at work or to whoever the Lord would put in your place. Will you invest today in the next four Sundays You're going to be here. You're going to learn these verses. And you're going to let them be part of your spiritual DNA so that you can bring glory to Christ through your evangelism. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. It's not just so we can tell others. We need it. It's the air that we breathe. Without it, Lord, we perish. We thank you that Jesus is our substitute. We're grateful, Father, that... uh, even though you know all about us and even though you judge impartially, you made a way that we could miss your wrath. And that is through faith in Christ. Father, with David, we say, how blessed to know that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, you give us mercy and grace for all who call upon the name of the Lord. And yet, Lord, the other side of that coin is just as true. If we reject you, If we depend on anything but the shed blood of Jesus, the wrath of God still is on us. And one day the person who rejects Jesus will stand before you, his creator, his maker, his judge. And you'll cast him out of your sight. And Lord, we don't want that for anyone in this room today. We pray your spirit would convict of sin and judgment of righteousness. Would you call many to yourself today? And we pray it in Christ's name.
Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.